Well, beloved, we are in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, continuing from where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week and you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon, I would encourage you to do that because this is a difficult text and so I can't repeat everything I said last week and I'm trying to make a commitment to be finished on time. So I would encourage you, please listen to last week's message, but we're just going to pick up where we left off. By the way, welcome kids, glad you're in here, and I'm sure you'll have some questions about the sermon today, and go ahead and ask your mom and dad, because they have it all figured out. (laughs) So uh, yeah, this is a difficult passage. Uh, As I mentioned last week, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said of this passage in his commentary that he did not know for certain what Peter meant. He did not know for certain what Peter meant. It has been understood in various ways, but like, other, like any other Bible passage or passage in the Bible, it has only one right interpretation. Just always want to say that up front. It is not, there's not multiple ways to understand this text. There's only one right, right, one right way. Wow, I'm having some difficulty up here. One right way to understand the text. So I'm striving with you to try to get to that right meaning. Acknowledging that this is a difficult passage to know for certain what the right meaning is, to be dogmatic about it anyway. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. I'll read the text, and then we'll we'll, uh, go ahead and dive in. Beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So let me just remind you of a few things that I said last week that you should just be thinking about as we move through the text. And that's just the big idea here because it helps, I think, keep us grounded and not go too far away from what the the meaning I believe to be is of this passage here. One of the themes, one of the major themes of 1 Peter is unjust suffering. So it's not just just general suffering that every human being experiences, but specifically suffering for following Christ, doing good, your good conduct in Christ, pursuing him, living for him, proclaiming him, and yet suffering. It's unjust suffering. And so Peter, having a pastor's heart, writes to these Christian readers who to one degree or another, we're experiencing that because of the Christian faith, and he, he writes to encourage them, to, to give them hope, to give them strength. And as I said before, there, there might be a temptation when one is undergoing such type of suffering to wonder, is there any value in this? Is there any good that could possibly come out of this? I'm doing good, yet suffering for it. The other thing they might wonder is, where is this road leading to? This is a very difficult road. Does it lead to just disaster? Is there, any, is there any hope at the end of this road? And Indeed, both 
both of those concerns are addressed, in a sense, in this passage. Not only uh, does good come out of unjust suffering because God forces it, forces it by his sovereign will to accomplish his good purposes, which I find very, for my own heart, I find very uh, comforting that not even unjust suffering is outside of the sovereign command of God, and he subjects that as well to accomplish his good. And we see that in the passage, in the fact that Christ suffered unjustly, and through that unjust suffering, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, he opened the way for sinners to be brought to God, to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with God. It may have appeared like that was a disaster, but God subjected it to himself, to his own sovereign plan, and brought it under it, and made it accomplish the greatest good man will ever know. Uh, beyond that, we see, as we move through the text, that there was victory. Even though Jesus suffered unjustly, uh, through that unjust suffering, victory was accomplished at the cross. Triumph. So, as a Christian who is also suffering for following Christ, being united with Christ, they can know for certain that Christ's triumph, Christ's victory is ultimately their triumph, their victory. Yes, you might suffer unjustly, believer, but know this, that that road ultimately ends in glory. So I think it's uh, encouragement. It's encouragement that we find here. Encouragement that would help them persevere in the faith, continue to do good in the face of unjust suffering. Okay? Now, reviewing some of the things we talked about yesterday, I, or not yesterday, last Sunday, um, I'll just give you a short paragraph here on what we kind of covered last week without going into all the details and the nitty-gritty of how we got there. So if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. But really, in verse 18, really what you have here is Peter saying, listen, though Jesus suffered unjustly, and remember that injustice being that while he was living on this earth, he was perfectly righteous. Okay? He never sinned. He never, he never thought sinfully, he never spoke sinfully, he never did anything sinfully. Rather, his ways, in every way, was entirely righteous. He was the perfectly righteous one, and yet he was made to suffer and die. There could not be any greater injustice. But the unjust suffering was not pointless. Okay, And I think, I think that is in part what Peter is pointing out to us, this unjust suffering of Christ was not pointless, nor did it end in disaster or ruin. Rather, it was used according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, as it says in Acts 2.23, to accomplish God's holy purposes, to achieve the greatest benefit, as I said, that humanity will ever know. For Christ's unjust suffering on the cross opened the way for the repentant, believing sinner to be brought to God, verse 18. To be reconciled to a holy God. To have everlasting fellowship with the glorious creator. How? Through the victory of the cross of Christ. The victory. And as I said, remember, to his own followers, it did not look like a victory at the time. They thought, it's over. It's over. <laughs> but it was not over, it was just beginning. And Christ, 
after having been crucified by the hands of lawless men, being dead in the flesh, but remaining alive in his spirit, again, this is all review from last week, at some point between the time of his death and the time of his resurrection three days later, he went and proclaimed his victory over sin and Satan to the demons who had been put in prison for their disobedience during the days of Noah. Why were these demons in prison? Right? We talked about that last time. We looked at Genesis 6. We looked at 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We looked at Jude 5 and 7. And again, without getting into all of that, they were put in prison at that time by God for attempting to carry out a diabolical scheme to thwart the promise God made in the garden. This is very early on in human history when this occurred. But to thwart this, uh, this time of Noah and, the, and all that happened there. But they were put in prison for their scheme to thwart the promise that God made in the garden right after the fall of man concerning the eventual destruction of Satan through the seed or the offspring of the woman. That promised seed being the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior who would come to reverse the curse for humanity. This promise, as I mentioned last time, and I said I would just show it to you and make a few comments about it, is found in Genesis 3.15. So we have the creation of the world and humanity. We have the fall of man. He rebels against God. And here shortly, just right in the beginning, while that's still occurring in that whole time frame, we have this promise in Genesis 3.15. This promise has been understood or been called by scholars the first gospel. The first gospel. The first sign of the good news that God would fix what his creation had messed up. And we see that in Genesis 3.15. There, the scriptures say this, I will put, and he's speaking to the, to the serpent, he's speaking to Satan, who, again, remember we talked about this cosmic battle, this cosmic war, Satan enters in to the world. Why? To mess it up. To mess it up, to... to to get his creation to rebel against the creator because he himself is living in rebellion against him. Satan hates God. And so you see this continual battle at play and right here, right in the beginning, he enters into that garden, tempting Eve and ultimately leading in the, the sin of both of them, sinning against their God, disobeying him. So he speaks to him, God speaks to him, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking about there, the Eve, the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he says this, it seems a little ambiguous until, until the more of the story is told, but he says, he shall, this offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, here's the idea. Through the woman, eventually, through the woman, as she continues to conceive and descendants come through her, there would be one who would come, the seed, the descendants, one would come, and he will bruise your head. Bruise, probably... Maybe that, you know, bruise, we think a light wound, but the, really you can interpret that strike, strike. The idea is 
He'll strike your head. The picture is that he will deliver a fatal blow to you. Yes, you will strike his heel. You will bruise his heel, this one, meaning that you will injure him, but the injury will not be fatal. But he will crush you. One writer just puts it the way the serpent will strike the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will strike the head of the serpent, delivering a fatal blow, right? So you get a blow to your heel, you're not going to die. You get a blow to your head, you're done. Get it? That's the picture. That's why people, uh, scholars refer to this as the, the first gospel. Because right here, in its very infant stages, is a promise being made. Satan, your days are numbered. I'm going to send one, and yeah, you'll, you'll attempt to hurt him. But in your hurting of him, he will crush you. You see? So from that point on, there's this cosmic battle looking to see if he can prevent this one from coming, mess up humanity altogether, and just keep him from coming through the seed of the woman, right? So that's what we saw in Genesis, I believe. I believe that's what happened uniquely there as the sons of God took to themselves women and propagated with them the sons of God being demons who possessed human bodies and just something very strange going on there. But again, an attempt to prevent this promise made in Genesis 3.15. I told you, again, we see the attack as the, as the plan unfolded and we see that this one would come through the nation of Israel and that this one would come through a particular son in the nation and through a particular line. And you see this attack on the people of Israel and the Jewish people over and over again through history and in the, story, in the Bible. And why? Satanic. Satanic. He's, he was attempting to stop him. And then he comes and... He tries to tempt him to, to abandon his mission, and that didn't work. So he organizes a, a, a party within the Jewish religious people there that were the Pharisees that were so messed up to what? Kill him, right? And he thinks he won because he's a fool, because he's in rebellion, living in rebellion against God. So he's in darkness, and he did not win, but victory was accomplished, and that's what... Christ went and preached to those very demons who were looking to undo or prevent God's promise. That's what he preached to them. You lost. Okay? Ah, that's, uh, that was last week. Well, we talked a little bit more about it then. Okay, so now, picking up from there, uh, verse 20. You can look back at the text, verse 20. I just want to make a comment real quick. Although we covered this, there was some, something here that, again, I, I believe there's just a lot of encouragement. Peter is giving encouragement to these suffering Christians here. And he says in verse 20, just I want you to notice something, because they formerly did not obey, those are the, the demons, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Two words, I just want you to highlight, highlight for you there. When God's patience waited, when God's patience waited, and then he says, in which a few, in which a few, that is eight persons. Why say that? And one writer says this, and I agree with him. He says, they, they should not, Peter's readers, should not be discouraged by the smallness of their numbers. Right, because it would it would it would feel like they were the minority. Christians were the minority, which is true today as well. 
true Christians. And they're surrounded by people that are not believers and in some cases express and manifest their hostility against God in doing unjust things to those who are just following after Christ. So the writer says they should not be discouraged by the smallness of their numbers, but must remember that God now extends his patience to all. But the day of judgment is coming, in which their opponents will be ashamed, and they will be vindicated as Christ was vindicated. Right? Because that's what that picture is there. He's waiting. God's judgment was going to come upon the earth, but he was patient. So you too must be patient. You must trust God. He was patient during that time. He didn't wipe them out right away. He gave them plenty of time to repent. They did not. The only people who got on the boat was the Noah's family. No one else repented during that time. But he was patient. So be patient. Hence, the appeal to Noah and God's patience reminds them to persevere. And then it says, if God preserved Noah when he stood in opposition to the whole world, beloved, think about that. It's just eight folks. The rest of the world was filled with violence. They were living in rebellion against God. The rest of the world! That's a pretty dire situation. You could start to lose hope right away. But he didn't. So if God preserved Noah when he stood in opposition to the whole world, he will also save his people even though they are now being persecuted. And I think there is that intended connection that they are to make. Yeah, there was only a few of them. But God preserved them. God rescued them. And there are only a few of us, but God will preserve us. God will rescue us. God is looking out for us, watching over us, providing for us. Just as he did for Noah, he will for us as well. And God is patient with rebellious people. So he has a plan, and we must be patient too, and trust him, and trust his timing. I mean, if it were up, for me, up to me, I'm, I mean, I'm like, I'm like draw, do it now, God. You know what I mean? Come back now and bring the hammer. Do it now, if it were up to me. And it is good it is not up to me. Because there are still people that God is saving. So he has a plan. He'll carry out his plan. And when the last one has been saved, he will bring the hammer. Okay? He'll bring it. But it's his timing, his plan. I need to trust him. Thank God for his patience, right? Because you were saved in that patience. Now comes some more difficult statements. Okay? So this is the second part that I said I'd pick up next week, which is this week. So here we go. Here we go. Then he says, Peter says, after saying all that in 21, or in 20, he says, the baptism which corresponds to this. What is, okay, corresponds, think of it this way, similar. It's parallel, some parallel. So that's what the word means. So baptism is similar to this. Similar to what? Similar to what he just spoke about in verse 20. In what way? We'll come back to that, all right? So in some way, baptism is similar to, or is parallel to, in some way, to what he just talked about in verse 20. But then he says, now saves you. And that's where it gets, you know, your what? Baptism now saves you? I thought, pastor, you said I thought the church teaches that baptism doesn't save you. Peter says it now saves you. He goes on to say, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, before we look closer at this passage, let me show you by looking at a few other passages in the Bible why 
This passage in 1 Peter should not be taken to mean that the act of baptism actually saves a person. And this is important for you to get because some groups teach that. Okay? Or let me say it this way. It, does not, it is not teaching that when one who professes faith in God then briefly is submerged in water, that that act has some saving power. Or that is what brings the person's salvation or makes them a child of God or causes them to be born again. Sometimes referred to as baptismal regeneration. That that one is regenerated or made new in Christ right there in the act of baptism. Going down into the water, coming back up out of the water. And while I will uh, speak very confidently and dogmatically about that position, I also just want to say baptism is important. So I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay or put in your minds any way that baptism is secondary or optional or yeah, maybe, maybe not. For the believer, they are to be baptized. That was the command of Christ. It is, if uh, anything, the first act of obedience, in a sense. They are to be baptized. So, there are many places we could go in the scriptures to demonstrate that truth, that the act of baptism does not save. But we're just going to look at two today. I, I chose not to, and I'll just say this to you, if you've had this discussion with someone or this debate before, sometimes you've been told to uh, mention the thief on the cross. You remember the thief on the cross? To prove that baptism is not required to bring about salvation, nor does it come through baptism, but it comes through faith. And so people will talk about the thief on the cross. You can see that story in Luke 23, 39 through 43. You remember uh, the, there was one who repented, basically, right there on the cross and was rebuking the other uh, uh, criminal on the other side of Jesus who was saying terrible things about Christ. And uh, he repented. He said, we deserve to be here. He does not deserve to be here. And remember me when you come into your kingdom. So there's a recognition of who he is, of who this one hanging on the cross is by this uh, by this uh, criminal. So you see their repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And what does Jesus say to him? Well, uh, the only problem, buddy, is you need to be baptized. And so I'm not sure how you're going to get down off the cross and work that out, but if you can pull that off, I'll remember you when I come into my kingdom. And so he doesn't say that. What does he say? Do you remember? Today you will be with me in paradise. And today you will be with me with my father. So I've used that passage before with someone who suggests or is trying to prove that baptism does save you. And what they told me, and the apostolic church uh, believes this, by the way, you must be baptized in order to be saved. And, and their position is, is that God just made an exception. And so I don't know what to say to that, right? Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, it's a little weird, but, or they might suggest that, you know, Christ had not resurrected yet, and so he had not told his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So that command was not at play yet, and so in that case it was fine, but once he's given that command, it was given in order for people to be saved. And so I just avoid, I just don't use that passage. I'd rather use uh, these two, at least this morning, I think. There are many that we could go to, but, you know, we don't have time. So this uh, week... We were in, um, you know, the Behold Your God video, and you might remember if you were watching it that the author said that the Apostle Paul wrote half of a good portion of the New Testament. 
Yeah? Some of you, right? He wrote a good portion of it. Depends on how you look at it exactly, if you're counting words and stuff. But he, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament. So, concerning salvation, and concerning how one is, one is saved, do you think he's a reliable source? Come on. I mean, if you're going to step into the Bible at all, you've got to say, this guy's a reliable source for how one is saved, right? Okay, good. Apostle Paul, Acts 16. So if you want, you can turn there. It's not going to show up on the screen. Uh, in your blue Bibles, if you're using that, that would be page 925. Over on the right-hand side, Acts 16. I am going to read these passages, these next set of passages, fairly quickly, realizing that there's some stuff in these passages as we go through them that you might raise questions in your head. I'm not going to address all that. I'm not expositing these passages. I'm just using them to demonstrate the fact that baptism is not what brings one into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ or with the Father. It does not save them. It does not make them a child of God. So here we go. Let's, we're going back to Acts. This is the beginning of the you know, church and the history of the church. We see what's going on, what's transpiring as the gospel's going out. And in verse 25, now Paul, Paul and Silas, ministry partners, they're in prison. Because, you know, they're there a lot. Why? Because they're bad? No, because they're good. Uh, because they're preaching the gospel, because they're following Christ, unjust suffering. So here they are again. They find themselves in prison. Uh, but they're not protesting or anything of that nature. And you'll see here, they're, rather, they're praying and singing hymns. Right? Because whatever. Whatever. Because they know God is sovereign. He's in control. They're on a mission. And it cannot be stopped. Whether they be in prison, out of prison, the gospel goes forth. And they don't, so they suffer, so what? They know the end of the game. And their Lord suffered. And he says, do you think a servant is greater than their master? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And he knows all that. And so he's on a mission, man, watch, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And they didn't even have like Red Bull or anything back then. You know what I mean? They're in prison. These guys are just high on God. Love it. Don't put that in your notes or anything. And the prisoners, the prisoners there were listening to them, right? Such as prisoners will do. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Yeah, I wonder how that happened, God. So at the yeah, he controls the earth, guys. It's his earth. So at the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Bam! And everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's crazy. So not only did the doors open up, but the chains that held them to the walls fell off. It's awesome. When the jailer woke, so he's, the jailer's sleeping. When he woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So bottom line, he would have been dead meat anyway if he actually had let these guys out of his sight. And so he figured, I'm just going to, you know, do it. But Paul cried with a loud voice, hey, dude, no, don't do that. We're still here. Do not harm yourself, for we all are here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Stop. Okay? So, whatever, it was, it was either what he knew, what maybe Paul had told him earlier, I don't know. But at this point, he goes, wait a minute, these guys, did, they're still here, they didn't leave. He has a realization that this Jesus that Paul and Silas are locked up for is the one. He is the Messiah. He is everything that they've been talking about, singing about, praising God about. He's it. And he says, right there, right then, God reaches into his heart and mind, opens his eyes, removes the shutters, and he says, what must I do to be saved? 
You guys have the truth. I want it. What must I do? Right? I can't help but comment. That's the problem here. This is why I always go over. I need to just keep reading. So, right? What must I do to be saved? And they said, get baptized. <laughs> right there is the opportunity. What is he going to say? What's, what's Paul going to say there? What's he going to say? He just asked a simple question. What must I do to be saved? What does he say? And what does he not say? Very important. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Meaning that, not that his belief would save his household, but you believe and your household as well believe. And you will be saved right after you get baptized. No, he doesn't say that. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him and his work and his person and you will be saved, you and your household. Now watch, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, all who could understand and he took them the same hour in the night, watch this, and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So listen, you see there's a close connection. He believes, and then he is baptized. So it's not like baptism is like just some optional thing for the Christian, for the believer. It is what they are to do as a profession of their faith. But baptism was not what saved him. It was his belief that saved him. And then he went on to be baptized as an acknowledgement that he was united with Christ, following Christ, pursuing Christ. It identified him with Christ. Then he brought them up to his house, watch, and set food before them, the jailer. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had been baptized. What does it say? That he believed in God. He was rejoicing over that. Yes, a believer gets baptized. And he was rejoicing in the fact that he had believed in God, him and his household. Because that is what brings someone into a right relationship with God. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting your faith and trust in him. Okay. Who wrote 1 Peter? Huh? Peter, yeah. It's not a trick question. <laughs> So we look at Paul, by the way, many other places we could go, but right there, come on. If at any moment you had an opportunity to make clear that baptism was necessary for salvation, this man just asked, this jailer just asked, what must I do to be saved? It's very simple, my friend. You must believe and then be baptized. You must believe. Yes, that's what he said. You must believe and you will be saved. And then, of course, baptism follows faith and salvation. That was the normal process. All right, so I said who wrote First Peter, why? Because I want to show you, also in the book of Acts, something that occurred with Peter. Now remember, Peter's the one who just said, baptism corresponding to this now saves you. And people who want to try to prove that baptism is what saves you, they go to this passage. But remember who said it? Peter, right? Peter wrote it. So let's look at this experience of Peter. Is Peter thinking in his mind that baptism saves? I can guarantee you he doesn't think that. How do you know that, Jeremy? Acts. So Acts 10. Flip backwards. And we're going to skip a lot of the narrative here because we just don't have time. But here it is. Acts 10, beginning in verse 1. You, many of you may be familiar with the story. Great. I'm just trying to pull out the minimum that you need to try to flow with it. So at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. This is the early stages of the church. Okay? 
He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile, a centurion of, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God. So he was a God-fearer. So he didn't follow pagans as the other Gentiles did. He followed the God of Israel, but he was still a Gentile, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. Because that's what happens when God shows up, people. See, I can't help myself. I can't help. i got to stay with it. I want to make a comment, but all right. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay? Go get the guy. All right. Acts 10.39. So he gets the guy, Peter. Peter comes back. He's, he's now at his house. And I'm just skipping a lot of it. But here's what he is saying to Cornelius. Okay? He's giving this message to Cornelius. This is the message that... Now, a couple things. Not only did God want Cornelius to hear this message, but he wanted Peter to be there as well as an apostolic figure. In the early days of the church, he's bringing this apostolic message, the message of Christ. And here it is. He also wanted Peter to witness what was about to happen. Here it is. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country. He's saying, you know, we've, we saw what happened of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death. He's talking about Jesus by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. He's saying this to Cornelius. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He physically rose. We ate and drank with him. It was him, his body. He came back from the dead, just as he said he would. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, oh, the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, no mention of baptism there either, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Who's, who are we talking about? Cornelius, his family there. Friends, maybe. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, the Jewish people, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Okay? So... Okay, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So, what happened at Pentecost, when the Spirit came down and filled that room and filled the people, and they began to speak, not in some unknown, weird language, but in other languages that they did not know, proclaiming the glories of God, okay, demonstrated that the Spirit had come upon them, had filled them, that they were born again, okay, by the supernatural event they knew, and they saw this happen, the Jewish people and all that were gathered there, they now just saw the same thing happen to these Gentiles, and they were freaked out. Why? Because it's the church is in its infancy, and so they're still trying to wrestle with how does one become a follower of Christ? Is it through Judaism? Do we need to make sure they are uh, come through the Jewish system? Do we need to place them under the law? Should they be circumcised, all of this? I mean, Gentiles, they're nasty people. Don't they need to be cleansed first or something morally? Something has to happen. And what happens here? 
they are amazed because they just got brought into the family of God. How did they know that? How? Because God gave a sign through the spirit of them speaking in a tongue that they did not know, proclaiming the excellencies of God. That very sign, that very thing that occurred on the day of Pentecost. God had a purpose for this speaking in tongues. And that was part of the purpose right there. They now knew Gentiles as well. It is Jew and Gentile who come in. There is no more wall, no more barrier. Okay? All right. So, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues, stolen God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? What do you think the answer is? Why would we not baptize these people? They're saved just like us. Hello? Do you understand? So baptism identifies them as followers of Christ, being united with Christ. It is is an outward manifestation of an inward reality. That's what baptism is. And so Peter's saying, listen, forbade them to be baptized? Who are we? God just saved them. How do we know? They just spoke in tongues. They extolled the praises of God just as happened, which is evidence of, in that situation, of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them. Again, the book of Acts, just for you guys to get it, it's descriptive. It's describing what happened. He's not prescribing how every uh, situation should go forth from there on out. In other words, once they understood Gentiles were also brought in to the family of God through faith in Christ, once they got that, then they didn't have to have this special situation every time where the apostle would go and he would see this supernatural manifestation. God had a purpose for it. All right, so I only brought all that up to show you. And then he, then he says, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. To show you that Peter himself understood that one does not need to be baptized in order to be saved. One is saved when they believe and the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. Then the believer is baptized. Are you with me? Just to prove it a little bit further, Acts 11, 1 through 3. Now... The apostles and the brothers, so he goes, this occurred, this event occurred. You can read the entire thing, but this event occurred, and now he, there's word of this. What? Gentiles are getting saved? You've got to, I mean, it's, if you don't understand the historical context, then you miss it, and you don't understand why was this, why did things occur like they occurred? Because of what was going on. This, listen, Jesus was Jewish, right? He was a Jewish Messiah. He was of Israel. And the Gentiles were considered outside. They couldn't, there's no way they could come to God. But Jesus threw the doors open. And they need to understand these Gentiles who you count unclean are now clean in my eyes through Christ. Do not reject them any longer. And no, they don't have to get circumcised or come under the Mosaic law. They must have faith in my Messiah in the Lord Jesus, and they will be saved, just as I have called you now to, to have faith in the Messiah, and you too will be saved. So it was hard, but God was helping them in this transition transition stage to accept that reality. So, Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Not that they were baptized, but they had received the word of God. They had accepted it. They heard the gospel, and they believed it to be true. 
So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with him. If you guys don't, see, that's, you've got to get that. That was like forbidden. You can't be hanging out with Gentiles. They're dirty and nasty. Yeah, but what am I supposed to do? God's saving them. I mean, he's saving them. He's declaring them cleansed through the blood of Christ. He's bringing them into the family of God. You want me to reject the one God has approved? So Peter goes on in verse 15. Listen, he just tells them a story. As I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. How would you know if the Holy Spirit fell on someone? How would Peter know that? Because what occurred at Pentecost occurred there for these Gentiles. God was teaching his Jewish people something very important. And he did that through this mechanism, the supernatural mechanism of speaking in this unknown tongue. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then to the Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay? Repentance. In other words, they turn from their pagan ways or turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in God. And that brought life to them. You get me? So, now back to 1 Peter 3.21. There is no way, having experienced what Peter experienced, having said what he said as recorded in the book of Acts, that Peter, we could possibly think that Peter in any way thinks baptism saves you. So that cannot be what he's saying here in 1 Peter 3. That's my point. So what is he saying then? Okay? But we need to start there. I, I know Peter cannot be saying that, but... He makes a statement that's a little odd. So what is he saying? You with me? That's why we went through all that. So back. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as... But listen, that's not all he says. Now, if he stopped right there, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, and he just stopped, that would be difficult to deal with. Like, what? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. There's another possible way to, to, to put this passage together or to break it up. And the NASB, New American Standard Bible, does that. And I'm going to suggest to you that I think it's the best way. And it reads like this. Look up on the screen. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Hyphen. So he stops and he makes a comment concerning what he just said. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's not what I'm talking about but an appeal to God for a good conscience, end hyphen. He picks back up his thought through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you can remove that center section. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he wants to make sure they understand that when he says baptism now saves you, that you understand what he is saying and don't get confused. So he says there, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay. So what I think Peter is saying is this, just this, this is, I'm speaking for Peter now. So listen, when I say baptism saves you, I don't mean for a moment that taking a bath saves you or the removal of dirt from the body or the flesh or the physical act of baptism. I don't mean that for a moment. Rather, 
It is the appeal to God for a good conscience. End of statement. And then he picks back up. Now, like most of this passage, the exact meaning of that phrase, the appeal to God for a good conscience, is debated. But it seems best to me to understand it as a statement that describes saving faith. Or a believer being convicted of their sins before God and asking, appealing to God to forgive their sins and cleanse their conscience on the basis of the saving, substitutionary, sin-bearing, death, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how I would understand that phrase, an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a way of making a reference to saving faith. Faith that cleanses one's convicted conscience that he is guilty before God. Grudem, and uh, it's a commentator that I, I think does a great job with this passage, uh, he mentions that this is it's an, uh, concerning an appeal to God for a clear conscience. He sees it as an inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual, a transaction symbolized by the outward ceremony of baptism. It's symbolic of what has occurred inwardly. This outward going down, coming in the water is symbolic of you being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, your conscience being cleansed uh, because of your guilt before God, being cleansed by the fact that Christ has died for your sins and risen again so that you no longer stand guilty before God, but you have been set free. He puts it this way. If he's, he says, we could paraphrase the passage like this. Peter's saying this, Baptism now saves you. Not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spirituality which baptism represents. Thus, Peter guards against any magical view of baptism which would attribute saving power to the physical ceremony itself. That is how I would understand uh, the passage. That's the way I would understand it. That makes sense in light of the fact that we know Peter does not believe that baptism saves. He says it saves you, but he, and we'll get to this in a second, but he's making some comment concerning it corresponds to this. It saves you. Baptism now corresponding to this saves you. So there's something going on there. But when he says he saves you, he stops and he wants to explain. I'm not saying the act saves you. I'm not saying being dipped into water in heaven. I'm not saying saving a bath saves you. There's no magic. There's no power in the mechanical act. Rather, what saves you, as we know, is your faith in Christ, your cleansed conscience before God, your appeal that you have made to God. Either there at the baptism, you may have made it, or prior to the baptism, you made an appeal to God for a cleansed conscience, which occurs through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and your faith in it. Okay? I, know it's, I know it's hard, but I think it's, that's very reasonable, and I, I stand pretty solid there. But he, remember, he says, if we remove that phrase in the middle, he says, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's really the statement without the explanatory comment in the middle about his comment about baptism now saves you. So ultimately, it's the resurrection of Christ that saves a sinner. And the one commenter says, it's not even a request to God for a clean conscience, which actually provides the basis of our salvation. That salvation has ultimately been earned for us by Christ. And all that baptism represents comes to us not on the merits of any response from us, but through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection marked his once and for all exit from the realm of death and judgment on sin, and our union with him in his resurrection is the means by which God gives us new life. Our rising out of the waters of baptism is a picture of our being raised with Christ. All right, quickly. 1 Peter 
Now going back, I told you I'd come back to this comment. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, and we've dealt with what now saves you mean. He, he, he's not talking about the actual act of baptism, but it is faith in the risen one. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, all right? What is the this? I already said it's what he just discussed in verse 20, or the fact that Noah and his family were brought safely through the water, so they escaped God's judgment unharmed. They did not perish in the flood. Baptism, Peter says, is similar to that in some way. Okay? They did not. So what was the water that came upon the earth in the Noah's time? God's judgment upon a rebellious people. What did it bring them? Death. Except for eight. Who were the eight? Noah, his wife, his family, his sons and their wives. Okay? They were brought through the water safely through this ark that God had told them to prepare. So judgment came upon the earth. They were in the water. They went through the water, but they did not perish in the water, but were brought safely through the water. You follow me so far? In some way, baptism corresponds to that. So this is how one writer states it, and I think that he is, I think it's right. The water of baptism is like waters of judgment. Remember what we say. This is what the church has taught for a long time. That what baptism pictures is death and newness of life. You go down into the water and you go under the water. There you die. You are united with Christ in his death. Okay? So it's a picture of you dying. Dying there because that's what you deserve, but you are united with Christ. You have faith in Christ when you go down in that water. So you are united with Christ in his death. His death conquered sin. His death brought forgiveness. So one does not remain down in the water. Like all the rebels in Noah's time. Who drowned and stayed drowned. Rather, in baptism, what it pictures, you are what? I bring you, or whoever baptized you, bring you back up out of the water. Because being united in Christ in his death... And the power of that saving death, you are also united with him in his resurrection. You have conquered sin and death because Christ conquered on you. You didn't conquer, but Christ conquered and being united with him, you are triumphant. You do not remain dead, but you are risen to newness of life. The water cannot keep you down. Okay? So the writer says the water of baptism is like waters of judgment, similar to the waters of the flood, and showing clearly what we deserve for our sins. We deserve to be dead and remain dead. But being united with Christ, we are united with his resurrection. So he goes on to say, coming up out of the water of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood, the waters of God's judgment on sin, and emerging to live in newness of life. Baptism thus shows us clearly that in one sense we have died and been raised again. But in another sense we emerge from the waters knowing that we are still alive and have passed through the waters of God's judgment unharmed. That's beautiful. And then he says, As Noah fled into the ark, so we flee to Christ, and in him we escape judgment through his resurrection. Beautiful. I, and I, I think the, the whole thing is intended to be an encouragement. 
These people are surrounded by people that are punishing them for their faith in Christ, going after them for their faith in Christ. Listen, a day of reckoning is coming to this world. And though you may suffer unjustly now or even be harmed now because of him, it is also because of him and his triumphant resurrection that you will escape the great judgment to come completely unharmed. And baptism pictures that for you. And so every time you see baptism, you can be reminded again, corresponding to what occurred, Noah and his family saved through the waters. You will be saved through your faith in Jesus Christ. You will not be, remain dead in the water, but you come up out of the water. You are risen again in newness of life. And you have the hope of glory before you. I just think the whole thing is designed to, to encourage us folks. By the way, it doesn't occur too much for us now in America but in the day, back in the early church, man, you get baptized. Once you got baptized and identified with Christ, then that was a public thing, right? You could make profession of faith in your home, but then you went out and got baptized. People saw it. That's when the persecution began many times. But remember, yeah, they may harm you now. They may persecute you now. But you, you will not... You will not experience the judgment of God. You will be brought safely through it. How? Through Christ. Through Christ. Who are you are united with. Okay? And then finally, 1 Peter 3.22. So he ends verse 23. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. Who, that is Christ, has gone to heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Quickly. The right hand of God. We've talked about this before. In the ancient world, to sit at the right hand of a king signified authority and power. Authority and power. And that all were subjected to him. He, he was at the right. So that's what the picture is. Sitting at the right hand of God. He has all authority and power. And then he says, over what? With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Every single word there, angels, authorities, and powers, should be understood to be referring to angels. That's how you should understand that. It's referring to angelic beings. And so the point is that Jesus reigns over all angelic powers, hostile or otherwise, as demonstrated in the fact that he went down into the prison where they, some of them were being held and preached victory and triumph over them. So the writer says, one writer says this, the message for Peter's readers is clear. In their suffering, Jesus still reigns and rules. He has not surrendered believers into the power of the evil forces, even if they suffer until death, which did occur for some. Jesus, by his death, by his unjust suffering, remember, and resurrection has triumphed over all demonic forces, and hence, by implication, believers will reign together with him. All the powers of hell can come against you, but they have lost. They are defeated. Your king has triumphed over them. And you have triumphed over them too because you are in him. And let that be your hope. And I'll close with this. We sang about it this morning. Jesus calls his people to follow him. Yeah? To follow him. And we sing, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we sing that. And it's easy to say when the road's not tough. But following Jesus is often a road that leads to suffering. Here's what one writer said. As you follow him, his footsteps lead into the valley of humiliation. 
even to its lowest and darkest depths. But they also surely and confidently lead through the valley, ending at the throne of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray, Lord, that with this very difficult passage, you would just help us to find in it encouragement, Lord. We, we must admit we do not know unjust suffering, suffering for our faith, as many of our brothers and sisters have in history and even to this day do. But Lord, uh, to the degree that we experience that and to the degree that we might or our children might in generations to come, if you tarry, Father, may we be ready and prepared. May we not lose hope, but may we recognize and know in our hearts and believe and trust that even in our unjust suffering, as seen in in Jesus Christ, you can bring about great good. You do. It's not you could. You do bring about good. You accomplish your purposes. Nothing is outside of your sovereign hand. So even in that, even in that, we can trust you. You are working. And beyond that, this road of suffering, to whatever degree we might encounter it, is a road that ultimately leads to glory. For that is the same road our Savior took, and he is the triumphant one, the resurrected one, the conquering one. And with him, being united in him, we too are headed to the same destination. And so may we not be discouraged or overcome when we experience such persecutions and trials but know that the end of our road is glorious. In Christ's name we pray, amen.